Perhaps we could turn now to word of prayer before we start in on Second uh, Samuel chapter nine. Father, we want to say thank you once again this morning for the grace that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize as we draw near to you, we we just sang about how you are holy. Holy, holy. There's no way to finish explaining how holy you are, how separate you are from us. And yet, although you are perfect and just and holy, you you must punish sin, and yet you found a way to punish the sin and, and yet forgive the sinners like us if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, it's our desire today that as we study this passage together that you would reveal to us that greatness that if there's anyone here who does not know you personally as Savior, that they would turn and put their faith and trust in Christ today and become a child of God and an heir to eternal life through faith in Him. We also would just pray that you would help us who have experienced that grace already, Lord, to be like David and extend it to those around us. And we have an opportunity this evening. We want to pray in advance even, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to share that grace, that you would prepare the hearts of those we'll run into, uh, hopefully not literally on the boardwalk there, but that was they come in contact with, that we would be able to share the grace of the Lord Jesus with them. And Lord, as we go home, both today and throughout the week in our daily lives, would you please help us to learn to have open hearts to share Christ with those around us. And Father, we'd just like to pray also for us right now. As we open your word, would you please help our hearts to be open to receive whatever it is you'd like to say to us. May all things be done and said to the honor and glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Well, we find ourselves this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 9. For those of you who've been with us, you already know. For those visiting, we're going through a survey, a tour through the Old Testament uh, history. And we find ourselves right now during the life of King David, who is king over the nation of Israel. This would be part of the glory days of the people of Israel. God has brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the promised land. And after being there and and driving out many of the surrounding nations, there were still some there. And they they were in conflict with them. And they asked God for a king. And we saw the first king of Israel, Saul, who seemed to be, by all practical appearances, from what people could tell with their eyes, a great choice. But as he began, it seemed that he began well, but it didn't take long till we find that his heart was not really towards God. His heart was far from God. And just as he had rejected God and God's word, God finally sent message through Samuel that God has rejected you and you will not be king over Israel. Your house will not continue to reign over the people of God. And so he said, I will raise up a man who will take your place, who will be a man after my own heart. And that's David. We find ourselves now looking at David. He has now become king and he's been reigning. It appears perhaps some 20 years, but after he became king, we read that he was only king for over part of the, the, the nation until seven and a half years later, the full entire nation came under his reign. And then he began to desire to bring the capital city to Jerusalem. He wanted the, 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 the ark of God near him so he could worship God, so the presence of God could be amongst his people where they could be with each other day in and day out, which was what God wanted 
all along. And then we see him going out with various exploits against some of those surrounding nations that rose up against him. And now, at last, it seems there is a season of peace for David in his nation. That's where we find ourselves now in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's just 13 verses. But a very profound story of the grace of God seen very clearly in this historical record. Let's read it then, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear. For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, as for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both his feet. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. For some of us, it's a very familiar passage. Sometimes we come back to this story as we remember the Lord at uh, the Lord's Supper or communion service week by week because it's such a powerful picture of the grace of God to all mankind. But we want to take a look at this story from two different angles this morning, if we can. First of all, historically, it is an actual record of events that took place during the life of David. And so we want to look at David at Mephibosheth, at the actual historical characters. But in doing so, what we're going to see is that this whole story becomes a living metaphor for us, a picture of God's grace extended towards all mankind. And we're going to see how we can identify with Mephibosheth in this story. But for those of you who are familiar with the story and you yourself know that you have received the same grace of God that Mephibosheth was receiving from David. And you've received that grace from God through the Lord Jesus Christ when you put your trust in him. Don't check out because there is very powerful application 
to our own lives as we seek to live day by day in that same grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So having said that then, um, we'll launch right in. It says, now that David has come to this season of peace in his, in his reign as king, David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, you know, I got to say, there's probably many kings who've asked part of that question. It was very common in those days, and I think it still is in many places today. When one line of kings is suddenly overthrown by another, the new reigning king is suspicious of anyone who had ties and loyalties to the previous king. And so very often they would seek them out to kill them so that there's no rivals for the throne. And you can understand if David did this because at the very seven and a half years of, of his reign, 10 of the 12 tribes were actually following one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth. There was a rebellion in the nation. And so if David would suddenly go out against all these foreign countries who are attacking him and get, get done with all that outside focus and come back and say, now, get the business back, back here at home. Anyone else left of the house of Saul? Let's take care of business. That would be normal. But praise God, he didn't stop there. He said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? We read some weeks ago how David first became known to Saul. He was just a shepherd boy watching his father's sheep, the youngest of a whole slew of brothers, and some of them were serving with Saul in battle, and, and his father sent him to go see how the brothers were doing. And while he was there, Goliath came out, and, and, and the whole entire nation, Saul included, was afraid of him, and, and David would stand up and defeat this giant through the help of the Lord. And so the whole nation was introduced to David and he became mighty. His reputation was great. And Saul, Jonathan, Jonathan, excuse me, Saul's son, Jonathan, and David became the very best of friends. They loved one another and they made a covenant together. And as time went on and David could no longer stay in Jerusalem because Saul was trying to now kill David, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 20 that on the occasion where they parted for perhaps the last time that Jonathan pulled David aside and he said to him, this is 1 Samuel 20, 14, you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him even as he loved his own soul. And so David had entered into this promise, this vow with Jonathan. and said, No matter what happens, after your family is gone and I'm on the throne, yes, I will show kindness to your family. Well, you know, the story goes on even from there. When David was fleeing from Saul and he had opportunity to kill Saul twice, at the end of one of those encounters, Saul called out to David and made David promise that he would do, deal kindly with Saul in his house even after he became king. As much as Saul wanted to kill him so he couldn't become king, he knew that David would prevail. 
with the help of the Lord. And he's, he made David promise. So here is David after perhaps some 20 years has gone by. And he says, he remembers the vow that he made. And his heart was still faithful to the promise that he made. And so he comes and he asks this question. Now, he doesn't know the answer to the question. And so it tells us in verse 2 that there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they call him to him. And he says, yes, I'm at your service. And the king asks him, is there not still someone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba gives this incredible answer. Verse 3, there is still a son of Jonathan who's lame in his feet. Now we have to pause there for just a moment. First of all, this man Ziba. It's very confusing to know what is in his heart during this moment. We've seen two occasions already where when Saul was killed and when Saul's son Ishbosheth were killed and people came to brag to David that they were the ones to kill his enemy thinking that they would somehow become favorable in the sight of David. David, uh, he wasn't impressed. They had done harm to the Lord's anointed, and David actually had their lives taken in judgment upon them. But, you know, to be the informer, if for some reason Ziba thought that David was really like all the other kings and said, well, you know, hey, listen, there is somebody, and you can take care of them. I'll tell you where he is. It's the son of Jonathan, and, and, and he's in Lodabar, and you can find him. So he says he's, he's lame in his feet, and he goes on and tells him. The king says in verse 4, where is he? And I, I, David must have been so excited to hear this. I can just imagine the transformation of his face and say, well, there is somebody. And it's even the son of Jonathan. And so he's getting excited. Where is he? And Ziba says, well, indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. I know exactly where he is. We can get him for you. Now, it could be that he knew the character of David by now and wanted to help David. Or maybe he was actually hoping to ingratiate himself to David, thinking David was going to take him out. The reason this is so questionable is because of what reads later in the story of David's life, where David's on the run from Absalom. When Absalom is in a revolt against the king and, and Ziba seems to actually... Uh, uh, to deceive Mephibosheth and uh, try to divide him from David. It's, it's very confusing. So we don't really know what was in his heart. But the beautiful thing is, is that it didn't matter. He wasn't going to corrupt the heart of David, no matter what was in his heart. And you know, that's good news to you and me. As we find ourselves dealing with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, his heart is true and faithful and kind and full of grace. Yet there are some people who would come along. And in fact, Satan, as the accuser of the brethren, comes along and he wants to point out all of our faults. Hoping that maybe God would give up on his grace toward us. But it doesn't work. Praise God, he's still faithful and he's kind toward us. And so Ziba's thoughts and intentions, whatever they were, we'll never know. 100% certain here. But it doesn't change the story. David goes on to inquire. He says, well, where is this one, this son of Jonathan? Well, he's down in Machir. What's he doing there? 
Well, there's a piece of information very interesting to the story then. It tells us here in verse 3 that uh, Zeba said, yes, there is a son of Jonathan. He's lame in his feet. You want to see the story of how that happened, you can just turn a few pages to your left to 2 Samuel 4, 4. In the day that Saul and Jonathan both died, news started spreading. The king is dead. And people did fear that David would do exactly what other kings would do. And when the news began to spread, it says 2 Samuel 4, 4, that Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. Well, he wasn't lame yet, I don't believe. It says here that he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Bephibosheth. So here was this one that seems to have started out life with normal working legs. He was running around like every other five-year-old that we know of. And yet this one day, his little legs couldn't carry him fast enough. The nurse, nurse, fearing for his life, picked him up and began to run. And she tripped on something. And they fell. And he was injured in the fall and became lame. Now, to be lame in that day was a terrible thing. Uh, They didn't exactly have office jobs you could go apply for. You weren't much good in the field. You were a liability to the people around you. You had to depend on them. And uh, you didn't have much to contribute. Of course, being the king's son works a little in your favor. But now you are the remaining son to the king who's dead. And a new king is coming along. And so the fear had gripped them and they were running and fleeing. And as we read here in chapter 9, they brought him to this place called Lodabar. Now, I like geography. Not that I'm terribly good at it, but but I like maps and I like finding things on maps. And so um, if you're knowledgeable of that area of the country, right? So if this was a map and this is the nation of Israel over here. And over here is the Mediterranean Sea, right? You got the whole strip of land coming down here on the border. And this is the land of Israel. Now, Jerusalem was down here at the top of what is the Dead Sea. But the nation went pretty far up, 100 miles from north to south. And so Jerusalem, although down in the south, uh, uh, which is where David was, I said, well, where is this low Debar? It's way up near the Sea of Galilee, some 75 miles away. And not just up near the Sea of Galilee, but we're talking on the other side of the Jordan River. But unfortunately, that side of the Jordan River is where it begins to get into the desert lands east of the Jordan. And so this place of Lodabar got its name for no pasture because it was a pretty barren place. So here's this one, not able to do much to help himself. He's dependent on everyone else. He can't do anything. But... He's trying to do this in the barren land of Lodabar. But there was one, Makir, who was the son of Amiel. We don't really know much else about him, except that he was a kind man who extended his help to hide and to help this Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. And so Ziba says that's where he is. He's in this barren place. Lame on his feet. Now, if his intentions were good, he may have been trying to tell the king, listen, you don't need to worry about him. 
Listen, there's nothing he can do to you. He's lame. He's forgotten about. No one even knows where he is. He's just hidden away. And make here is going to take care of him. You'll never see him the rest of your life. He's afraid of you. But Jonathan would hear nothing of, or David would hear nothing of it. He says in verse 5, Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Can you imagine being in this place of a hideout where you just want to be anonymous? And suddenly the king's messengers arrive saying, You are wanted in Jerusalem. And we're here to escort you today. Whew. The fear that must have gripped his heart. He never knew David. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Now, that's easy to read, isn't it? And we can picture it. He comes into the presence of David and he throws himself down on his face before David. But see, it's not that easy. He's got crutches or he's got a little mat that he's hauling himself around on. He's got no legs to work. And so somehow he's got to get himself off his crutches on his face before David. Humbling, embarrassing. But he fell down on his face, prostrate, flat out, on his face before David. And David said, Mephibosheth! And now he has to answer, that's me. Here's your servant. I'm at your disposal. Whatever you're going to do, now's the time when you're going to do it. I've laid myself out before you. And praise the Lord, the story goes on. David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. He said, whatever you lost when Saul died, I'm restoring to you. All the land. And then he says, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. He's going to begin to eat, as it says later, like one of the king's sons, dining with David at his table every day. Wow. Well, what's he going to do with all this land that was given to him? Well, David calls Ziba back and says, listen, all that belong to your master I'm giving them Mephibosheth. So you take your 15 sons and your 20 servants and you go take care of that land. Whatever you bring in is going to be his inheritance, his family's inheritance. But he's going to stay here and eat with me day by day. Wow. And that's what he did. Verse 13. Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem for he ate continually at the king's table. And he was. He continued to be lame in both his feet. Now, that's the historical part of the story. But we said that there is a theological importance to how it relates to you and me, and we've already alluded to it, right? Is to see, when, when we recognize that God is the true king of glory, the king of kings and lord of lords, and he has always reigned in the eternal realm, the supernatural realm, for all eternity past. And yet there came a time where he decided to create this little world and this whole universe so that he could put man here. And it says that we were placed here for his glory so that he could, through us, picture in this whole universe and world the way that he reigns over the universe. And we were his image in this world. 
And he made us in his image and had a special relationship with mankind and would come down in the cool of the day and would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden and spend time with them and enjoy their relationship. And that's the way Jonathan and Mephibosheth lived in the land of Israel. They were at perfect harmony with the king and they were heirs to the throne. They were in, they were in oneness with Saul. But then there came a day, the day that he fell. Yes, it was the day Saul died. And that's where the picture kind of breaks down, right? God hasn't died. But there was a change in the kings. See, Adam and Eve decided that they were going to go in rebellion against God. And the moment they took a bite of that fruit, they were doing the same thing that that Satan did in heaven when he rebelled against God. And they decided that they were going to be the ones ruling their lives. They weren't going to stay under the support of, of God. No, no, no. He's holding out on us. We believe the lie that, that, that he really has something he's keeping from us. And it's better if we actually do this. And so they took the fruit and they, we use that word. Mankind fell from the privileged relationship they had with God. And just like Mephibosheth found himself irreplaceable irreparably lame from the fall. We are unrepairably broken in our relationship with God because of the sin. Not just that Adam and Eve committed, but that we've committed. And we all know it. We're broken people. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. doesn't matter. You know, yeah, we can look around and see people that we're better than, but that doesn't matter. The Bible says that to break any part of the law of God is to find ourselves guilty before him. I was getting out my ropes to bring today to the beach. And I said, you know, it's a great illustration, right? We look at each other like this. We say, oh, well, there's some people in the world who don't have a whole lot of sin. They're, they're very holy people. And we, we look at people, Mother Teresa. Oh, yeah, she was wonderful. And we don't know all that was in her heart, but people look at her reputation and they think, oh, yeah, she was one of those people. Really good. And oh, no, there's those Adolf Hitlers in the world. They're really evil and they've got lots of sin. That's going to keep them out of heaven. And, and, and we like to evaluate on what we see. And when we look at ourselves, we say, well, I'm not near. Maybe I'm not as good as her, but I'm not nearly as bad as him. And maybe I'll just do OK. And we evaluate ourselves seeing the differences between us and everyone else around. But the beautiful part of the story that we're talking about today includes a little bit of bad news. And that is, although that we like to size ourselves up differently than others, when God looks at us, he sees that there's something about us that's absolutely the same as everybody else. Mother Teresa, Hitler, you and me and everybody in between is guilty before God because we're sinners just like everybody else. There's no way we can fix that because we're already broken. We already are under the wrath of God because we have sinned. And so we've got to stop looking at ourselves like that. We've got to realize we're just like Mephibosheth. We're one who deserves to die at the hand of the true king. But yet we, there's a place of grace. Mephibosheth couldn't fix the fact that he had been born into the house of Jonathan. He couldn't fix the fact that he was lame. But the king was offering his kindness anyway. And you notice he offered it, it says, for Jonathan's sake. There was a vow that he made because he loved Jonathan. And Jonathan becomes for us the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who <clears throat> the son of God came to earth and he died to pay for our sin. And because he paid that debt, the Bible says he can wash away our sin. 
and become our substitute to take our place and pay the full penalty of our sin. And when we do that, we look upon him by faith, receive that offer of forgiveness. He brings us into his family. We can dine with him for all eternity in heaven at the king's table. The moment we trust in Christ, but he offers it to us, not because of anything we are, but because of his son's sake, because of the Lord Jesus sake. And that's where this picture becomes to us a beautiful picture of salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, in the greatness of his mercy and his grace, sent Jesus to die for us that he could bring us into his family. Like Mephibosheth was brought into David's family to dine at his table forever and ever. My friend, if you're here today and you've never done that, I just want to encourage you, warn you. Don't leave those doors until you know that your sin is forgiven. Because once this life is over, it's too late. You can't change your mind and, and believe then. You will believe, but the, the opportunity for God's grace will be closed. And so the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And we appeal to you today, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Stop trying to fix your sin problem. Just like Mephibosheth couldn't fix his own lameness, you can't fix your sin problem. You're already a sinner. You're already under the judgment of God. But he is the gracious king, wants to offer forgiveness to you if you will but receive it. But I want to just talk for a few minutes to those of us who already understand that, who've already put our trust in Jesus Christ. Because, you know, we can fit ourselves into this story in a slightly different way, and that is this. David was one who had received the grace of God. He knew He's the one that wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have put myself, like Mephibosheth, who laid out on his face before David and said, I'm at your mercy. David had done the same thing and realized, I'm a sinner. I need your mercy. And God had forgiven him and brought him into this great position of grace. He said that when he was made king. And he said, Lord, why have you looked upon me with such kindness? Who am I? I'm just a little kid out of nowhere, not from a famous family. But you've shown kindness to me. And now he's in a place where he has opportunity to show grace to someone else. You and me. In Matthew 28, Jesus Christ said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And now I'm commanding you, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. All the world, all the nations, all people. Go. He commissioned those apostles to do that. And then he said, and you teach. Okay, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all things I'm commanding you. And so it's a perpetuating command. If we're really going to follow what he said, then he's saying, I want you to go to all the nations and make disciples. The grace I've shown to you. Show to everyone else. Mark 16 would say it like this. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every creature. That's hard, isn't it? Jonah, servant of God, was asked to go to Nineveh. A people he didn't like. A whole nation of people who he despised. And God said, no, I've shown you grace. You show them grace. Peter was sitting there 
wanting to only go to the Jewish people. And God said, no, 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 what I call clean, don't you call unclean. I want you to go visit this Roman centurion, Cornelius. He's got a message that he needs to hear from me. And you're the man. I want you to go and talk to this Gentile about the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It was hard for him. Three times he argued with God, but finally he submitted and he went, didn't he? It's not in our nature to do things like that. Perhaps it's not in our nature to, to look on these people from ISIS or from other religious groups, some of the radical Muslims of the world. But I was very provoked of heart when we heard that letter read on Wednesday night from Tom Aiken about the Christians in Turkey, where ISIS has arrived and they're terrorizing the church already as they find them. And what's one of the first prayer requests, not just for the protection of his people, but he says that, that these terrorists themselves would come to understand the grace of God and turn to Jesus Christ. The missionaries in Hungary are being flooded by all these refugees coming out of Syria to where the nation is walling up the, the, the borders, not letting anyone through, and they're not sure what to do. They don't know how to handle it all, but they said, where are we going to find enough food to eat? Where are we gonna, how are we going to keep the crime out of our cities? That's not, the, that's not at all what was in the prayer request. We don't speak their language, but they need the Lord Jesus. We need literature that's going to be in their language so we can tell them how they can find Jesus Christ as their Savior. And now we heard it this morning from Poland. The Swains are there, and they're being inundated by these refugees, and they want to reach out to them. And we should too. And praise God, there are groups who are trying to do that, and whether it's Samaritan's Purse or someone else, we can have a part in that work. But you know what? We, it's not just about the other side of the world, is it? Right here in our own country. We're being challenged by people with different political ideas. Siding with a very radical agenda that's, that's marginalizing people who believe in the word of God into a smaller and smaller corner. And we're just waiting for some sort of trouble to break out. That's where Jonah was. And God said, reach out to them with my grace. And maybe a little closer to home. We're surrounded by people who have rejected the word of God and have their own different ideas about gender, marriage, the very definitions of these things. And there's a very radical agenda going around right in the places where we work. Some of us, it's in our own families. And God says, freely you've received of my grace, freely give. And I have family members who I know are hostile to the gospel. And so I kind of steer clear of those opportunities. Wrongfully so. David could have just sat at home and done nothing. He could have just left Mephibosheth there. He didn't have to do anything harmful to him. He just could have forgotten about him. But see, that's not what God did for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says 
that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He said the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And you know, the grace that we stand in is so great. And here's what I'm finding in my little peon ways that I finally take baby steps to try these things. You know, God has promised us the grace to finish the race that he's called us to run. And so if there's a command to go, there will be provision and protection to accomplish whatever it is. Uh, Just last night, I'm sorry. You're familiar with uh, Elijah Hall and his family down in Paraguay. We've been praying for them and... And some months ago, Moira had that infection in her leg and they thought they were, they didn't know whether she was going to be able to keep her foot. And they finally were able to do a skin graft and she was on some terribly strong antibiotics and was, was, was away from home for months. And she was finally able to go back. And I've been waiting to see some reports, wondering what's happening. And lately they've been on my mind more and we've been praying for the halls and Lord, I don't know what's going on, but please help them. And shame on me. I didn't get to writing the email to try to say, Hey, what's the latest? But after praying last night, and I sat down and I looked at a few emails, I realized, wait a minute, there's one from the halls. I missed the one on Friday, but I saw that on Friday, she was rushed back to Asuncion to have gallbladder surgery because she had these huge stones and was was in a, a terrible amount of pain, couldn't eat, was now jaundiced, and they were afraid for her health and her life. But they said, we can't quite do surgery because we want to make sure that her liver is operating properly. And, and, and so they, 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 were, they were kind of in this pattern of holding and they sent out this first email to pray. But then they said today that they just got on their face before God. They said, well, we, we don't even know what to ask. Of course, we want to ask just heal Moira. But we, what we really want, Lord, is that you receive the glory that you deserve. And whatever way you want to do that through us, we're in your hands. The exact place that Mephibosheth was when he said, here I am, falling on his face before God. And praise God, yesterday morning, as they brought her in for another sonogram to see what was going on in there, the doctors looked at it and they said, there's no, there's no stones. Gone. They had the two reports side by side. We don't understand this. They themselves did the, 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 the test. They knew that it was the right one and that... that, that said, we, don't, we, we can't explain this. And so Moira spoke up and she said, well, you know what? I believe that God is a God who still can do miracles any and every time that he chooses to. Not that we can tell him when to, but he still does. And he just did. And the doctor himself, they gave a little quote in his language. I couldn't say it to you, even if it was in front of me, but basically said, you know what? That's true. God is able. And so God was working and giving the grace, even through this deep, dark time, they didn't know what was going to happen to Moira to sustain them. They were going with the grace of God to this tribe in Paraguay to try to reach them for Christ. And God will do the same for us. He may not do a miracle, but he'll give us the grace to endure whatever comes our way as we walk in obedience to him. But that's our challenge today. You know, okay, I don't want to just leave this as a gospel application because you know what? There's another application. And I'll say this. Right here within this congregation of believers, we've received grace. But you know, we've been challenged in God's word recently as we studied the book of James. You know what he said? 
pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Not because we can quote a lot of Bible verses and stand around and look pretty good on Sunday mornings. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself unspotted by the world. And he goes on in chapter 2 to say, Do not hold the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. Someone comes in who smells nice and looks nice. Talks nice. Come. Let's go have some coffee. And then another one comes in. Maybe they don't look so nice, smell so nice, talk so nice. And we leave it to themselves. Jesus said in Matthew 25, You know what? I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked and in prison and and you came and visited me and clothed me and gave me something to drink. And they said, well, Lord, I don't remember that. When when, when did I see you hungry and give you something to eat? When were you in prison, Lord? And, 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 And we brought, we visited you. And as much as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. And he turned to those on his left and said, And as much as you did not do it to the least of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me. So as we think about ISIS on the other side of the world, and we think about the, 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 the agendas that are contrary in our society, it's true, we need to bring the gospel to them and be able to disagree with them without being disagreeable and show the grace of God to them and share with them the grace of Jesus Christ and how they can be saved. Right here, we need to share the grace of God. You know, I remember the time when I was 16. I was going into 11th grade and there was a gap in our Sunday school classes where the other people in front of me were two years ahead. <clears throat> so they all graduated and we all went to camp in the summer. We came back in the fall and youth group was starting again in Sunday school. And, and uh, one of the teachers pulled me aside, the youth worker, and he said, listen, Dave, he knew I was a shy person all my life. He said, I, I know that you're waiting for people to reach out to you. I understand that. But did you know you're the oldest one in the youth group now and everyone else is waiting for you to reach out to them? I was terrified. But I looked around and I knew it was true. And I had a car and I was asked to pick some kids up for youth group and it didn't have a radio. I was like, I can't even put a... I can't even put some music or talk show on to keep the thing. And i got to drive these people around and, and they're not talking. They're new to youth group and, and they don't come here and... So, where do you go to school? Flanagan. Uh, You got any brothers or sisters? Yeah. How many? Pull it out. It was so uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. I, I would get home the other night worn out just from taking people home, much less what went on at youth group. But you know, I, I was visiting my brother-in-law's house just two weeks ago and some of the kids were playing volleyball out on the volleyball court and I was swimming with my kids in the pool and one of the moms came over and said, Hey, you're Dave Bosworth. I said, Yeah. So you remember me, Louisa? You used to pick me up for youth group. And I trusted Christ at youth group. 
And I kept coming. I kept learning. I was growing. And I ended up meeting a Christian and I got married right out of high school. No one knew. They thought it was like an out of nowhere thing, but they, they, they had been growing this relationship. No one even really knew. I didn't know anything about it. And now 30 years later, her son is about to graduate from high school, walking with the Lord, one of the best friends of my nephew. He's been to Camp Horizon. He's growing in Christ. And I didn't even know. I just gave someone a ride home. And, you know, we come here. And we don't know what's going to come of the conversations when we get up out of these seats. Someone may need Christ. Someone may be suffering. And too many times, I'm just going to hang out with my friends. It's not just the youth group who have this problem, right? We as young people don't necessarily go talk to the senior citizens. But, you know, sometimes we as the adults don't go talk to them or the senior citizens. And we need one another. We've experienced the grace of God. And he's saying, share it. Yes, it's uncomfortable. But we can trust God with the result of what he'll do. We may never know until heaven. I think maybe God gave me that little insight two weeks ago just so I could share it with you today. Because there may be someone around you who needs the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's not wait till it's too late. Father, as we close our time together this morning, we just want to say thank you for the grace that you've shown us. Thank you for so freely coming of your own will to rescue us. You could have just left us to ourselves when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet the the great, great verse there in in Ephesians chapter 2, but God, but you did something. You reached out to us with grace, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. And we just want to say this morning, thank you. Thank you for loving us. And as you have given us this grace, we want to ask that you would further give us more grace to be able to share that same love and forgiveness and grace with those around us, both to the lost, no matter how uncomfortable it might get, but Lord, also right here amongst us. Help us to show your grace, not for our sake, not for our glory, but may it be truly for the glory of of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.